This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the probable cause affidavit in the case of the Delphi murders? First, I will offer a brief summary of this case, review the content of the probable cause affidavit, then offer my analysis. The bodies of 14-year-old Liberty German and 13-year-old Abigail Williams were discovered on the north bank of Deer Creek in Delphi, Indiana, at about noon on February 14, 2017. They had been missing since the day before. The girls had been hiking on the Delphi Historic Trail and crossed an abandoned railway bridge called the Monon High Bridge. The police investigated the case for years. There were a number of suspects, but nothing seemed to be happening in the case. That changed on October 26, 2022, when a 50-year-old pharmacy technician named Richard Matthew Allen was arrested. Two days later, he was charged with two counts of murder. He pleaded not guilty. The prosecution fought to have the probable cause affidavit sealed, so not much was known about the case against Richard. But in late November 2022, it was unsealed. The affidavit doesn't necessarily contain all the information against Richard, but it does offer some compelling details. This takes me to the summary of the probable cause affidavit. The affidavit is eight pages long. It appears as though names were redacted, which makes the narrative a little bit confusing at times. The document starts by describing how the bodies of Abigail and Liberty, referred to as victims one and two respectively, were found on February 14, 2017, near the Monon High Bridge. The document then goes into detail about the events of February 13. At 2.13 p.m., Liberty video recorded a man on the bridge. As the man approached both Liberty and Abigail, one of them said the word, gun. This was new information that had not been made public previously. Near the end of the video, the man says, guys, down the hill. The video ends as the girls start walking down the hill. After this, there was no outgoing communication from Liberty's phone. After the victim's bodies were discovered, the police found an intact cartridge between the two bodies, about two feet away from Liberty's body. This cartridge was a 40 caliber S&W. The cartridge had not been fired. Again, it was intact. So there was a case, bullet, primer, and propellant. All the parts of the cartridge were there. The affidavit claims that there were extraction marks on the cartridge, presumably on the case. The police are suggesting that the cartridge was ejected from a semi-automatic firearm by someone who manually cycled the action. The affidavit then switches over to 
looking at witness statements. The police interviewed three juveniles who told them that they were on the Monon High Bridge on February 13, 2017. They were walking on the trail toward Freedom Bridge, which is about 0.7 miles away, when they encountered a man wearing blue jeans and a light blue jacket. He was walking with a purpose, kept his head down and his hands in his pockets. His hair was gray and maybe a little brown. He had something covering his mouth. One of the girls described the man as kind of creepy. They greeted the man by saying hi, but he just glared at them. Four other witnesses saw a man on the Delphi Trail as well. The first witness said that she observed a man similar to the one featured in Liberty's video standing on the Monon High Bridge. She also saw Liberty and Abigail. This witness's vehicle was captured on video leaving the area at 2.14 p.m., which was one minute after Liberty captured the man with her cell phone camera. The witness noticed a vehicle parked at the old Child Protective Services building, which is later referred to as the CPS building. The vehicle was backed up near the building, which was unusual. The license plate was not visible. The second witness saw what appeared to be a purple PT Cruiser, or another small SUV parked at the CPS building at 2.10 p.m. that same day. This witness stated that the vehicle was backed in. A third witness described a smart car being parked at the CPS building. At about 3.57 p.m., a fourth witness saw a man walking away from the bridge. He was wearing a blue jacket and blue jeans and was covered in mud and in blood. She thought that the man had been in a fight. The affidavit then moves to the statements that Richard made to the police. Evidently, he voluntarily provided them information. Richard said that on February 13, he was on the trail from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. He saw three girls, but did not pay attention to them. Richard owned a black 2016 Ford Focus, which the police believed was similar looking to a PT Cruiser, small SUV, and a smart car. Richard was interviewed again on October 13, 2022. He repeated his story about how he was on the trail on February 13, 2017, and saw girls there. He further stated that he went onto the Monenhai Bridge to watch fish. I guess this is like bird watching, except with fish. Perhaps bird watching is too exciting for some people, so watching fish is more their speed. It's not really clear. Richard indicated that he parked his vehicle on the side of an old building. He was wearing blue jeans and a blue or black jacket. He may have been wearing some type of head covering. The police executed a warrant the same day they interviewed Richard, again, October 13. They found a number of items, including a Sig Sauer P226. This is a semi-automatic pistol chambered in 40 caliber S&W. Richard had owned the pistol since 2001. Over the next few days, the Indiana State Police Laboratory performed an analysis of the pistol and the cartridge found where the bodies were located. They concluded that the cartridge had been cycled through Richard's pistol. The laboratory stated that their interpretation of the identification was subjective in nature and based on relevant scientific research. These statements appear to conflict. Richard was interviewed again on October 26, 2022. He told the police that he never let anyone borrow his pistol. He was confronted with the information about the cartridge. He did not have any explanation for it. 
Richard denied any involvement in the murders. When putting together all the evidence, the police concluded that Richard must have been the man in the video. The witnesses who saw the man on the trail did not see any other men. Just one man was spotted around the time that Liberty took that video, which again was at 2.13 p.m. If Richard was the man in the video, and he was the man the witnesses spotted, this makes it seem as though he was the killer. Other men were spotted after 2.30 p.m., but they did not match the description of the man in the video. The police may have other evidence, which is not in the affidavit. For example, some time ago they indicated that other evidence of value was found on Liberty's phone. At the very least, we know that there was more video of the man on the bridge than the police released. The complete video was 43 seconds long, but the police only released a few seconds of video to the public. There is other information which has not been released. For example, how were the girls murdered? Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Now moving to my analysis. Based on the evidence in the affidavit, do I think that Richard Allen is guilty of the murders? Let's take a look at the factors both for and against the idea that he was guilty, starting with the inculpatory factors. Richard lived within two and a half miles of the Monon High Bridge. He had knowledge of the area. Richard admitted that he was on the Delphi Trail during the time when it is believed the murders were committed. Richard's physical appearance is somewhat similar to the man captured in the video. He is about the right age, height, and weight, and he admitted wearing clothes which were like what the man in the video was wearing. Several witnesses spotted a man who appeared to be the killer. They described somebody who looked like Richard. No other men were spotted during that time. Richard was not spotted after that video was taken, presumably because he was committing the murders. One of the girls mentioned a gun. Richard owned a gun. It was chambered in the same caliber as a cartridge which was found between the bodies, 40 caliber S&W. 
The police laboratory claimed that marks on the cartridge matched Richard's pistol. Presumably, the marks were made when the cartridge was manually cycled. The vehicle parked near the CPS building may have been Richard's Ford Focus. Now moving to the exculpatory factors. Richard does not match the general profile of someone who would commit this type of crime. For example, Richard does not have a criminal record. He does have a stable romantic relationship and a history of steady employment. If he was the killer, why didn't he get rid of the gun and move away from the area? Just because witnesses did not spot another man on the trail doesn't mean that there wasn't another man on the trail. Richard owned a 2016 Ford Focus. It does not look like a PT Cruiser, small SUV, or a smart car. One could argue that the PT Cruiser and the smart car are among the most distinctive vehicles on the roads. They are the most difficult to confuse with other vehicles. It seems very unlikely that the police were able to match the 40 caliber S&W cartridge to Richard's Sig Sauer P226. The science behind connecting parts of a cartridge to firearms is shaky, even under the best of conditions. The ideal situation would be trying to make a match involving a gun that was discharged. When a semi-automatic pistol is fired, a lot of force is generated, and various components of the gun touch different parts of the cartridge. This can create marks on the case, primer, and the bullet, which may be distinctive. In this instance, the police are not talking about a gun that was discharged. They're talking about Richard pulling the slide back on his pistol and manually ejecting an intact cartridge. This does not generate a lot of force and would not necessarily make any distinctive mark on the case. The primer and the bullet would not be involved at all. It's not clear why Richard would do this. Perhaps he did not know how to operate the gun properly, or for some reason he decided to empty the chamber during the commission of the murders. Seems like unusual timing, but maybe he was nervous or agitated. Either way, there are many reasons to believe this identification is unreliable or insignificant. Here are a few examples. Maybe the cartridge was there when the girls were murdered. How did the police know that the killer left the cartridge? Why would the killer leave a cartridge at the scene? A cartridge can be cycled through any number of pistols any number of times. Richard could have run that cartridge through his pistol or other pistols a thousand times. How do the police know the marks were created by the cartridge being cycled one time through Richard's pistol? There is no scientific reason to believe that a manually cycled cartridge could be matched to a pistol with any acceptable level of reliability. When considering all the evidence that the police presented in the probable cause affidavit, do I think that Richard Allen is guilty? I think he's probably guilty in reality. He does look like the individual captured in the video, but there's no way that he's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. As far as I'm concerned, the whole theory about the cartridge cannot be trusted. In addition to the identification not being based on science, it doesn't appear as though the officers really understood the difference between a cartridge and a bullet. A bullet is just one part of a cartridge. They referred to the cartridge as a bullet more than once in the affidavit. They never mentioned the extractor or the ejector even one time in the affidavit. These are the two components of the pistol that would have made the marks on the cartridge case. There is a sense that the police were one step away from saying something like, the thingy that goes bang-bang abandoned the shiny metal tic-tac that makes it flash. When trying to convict a man of two murders, it might be a good idea to use the correct terminology. 
All the police really have against Richard is that he was on the Delphi Trail on the day of the murders, and he matches the description of the man in the video. This is not nearly enough for a conviction. Moving to the next section, here are my thoughts on a few areas that stood out to me in this case. Item number one, it appears as though the state may have misled the court in this case. The state argued that they wanted the probable cause affidavit to remain sealed because they had good reason to believe Richard may not have been the only person involved in the murders. The problem here is that no one else was mentioned in the affidavit. What are they talking about? Who is this mysterious other person? This type of situation happens all too often. Prosecutors argue to keep information from the public, but when that information is finally revealed, the public realizes that there was no need for it to be a secret in the first place. Item number two, the case against Richard is built mostly through his own cooperation with the police. This is yet another example of why it's never a good idea to talk to the police. They are not on the side of citizens. Richard may have been trying to be helpful, but he may have talked himself into spending his life in prison. Item number three, Richard apparently spoke to the police for the first time several years ago. Why did it take so long to arrest him? The police told the public repeatedly that they were diligently working to close the case. Yet Richard was available this whole time. He didn't leave Delphi, Indiana. The police could have interviewed him at any time. There is this sense that the police in this case are incompetent. Now moving to my final thoughts. If Richard Allen is guilty, he is a very unusual killer, one with no criminal record. If Richard is innocent, he has exposed the tremendous incompetence of the police. Either way, there should be consequences. It's just a matter of figuring out which party should be held accountable. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.